Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. We are in a sermon series going through the book of Galatians. And as I've been under the weather for the past few weeks, and we've gotten to a part of Galatians that is a little bit more difficult to unpack, I've punted the past few weeks on this passage. And so we've looked at some miracle stories in Mark uh, and things of that nature. Um, But we're going to dive back into Galatians this morning. Now, as we've talked about, Galatians is a notoriously difficult book to read and to understand. Um, There is one kind of traditional reading of Galatians and passages in Galatians that seems pretty obvious and seems pretty easy, and that most of us, if we grew up in or around the church world, are familiar with. Um, But as I've been arguing and we've been going through the book of Galatians, I think is ultimately incorrect and ultimately ignores a lot of the evidence of the book and kind of leads us off uh, the path. In Galatians, you have, um, in a large sense, a kind of competition happening, um, competing for the hearts of the people who belong to the churches in Galatia. The competition seems to be between faith and works. Faith in Jesus Christ or the works of the law, particularly circumcision and perhaps table fellowship, kosher, dietary laws. And here's what we have said, um, as opposed to what some have called the classical Lutheran tradition, which is that you're not saved by earning your salvation, you're saved simply by believing in Jesus. We've instead argued and will continue to argue that Galatians does not set up two alternative human actions and then invites you to pick one. We've said instead that when you see words like faith in Jesus Christ or even just faith by itself, that most often than not, we're referring not to human faith, faith that we might place in something or somebody like Jesus, but instead the faith of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, the the story or narrative of Jesus, the one who came and was crucified and resurrected, the one who enacted salvation for his people. And so the option between faith in Jesus Christ versus the works of the law is not between one human endeavor versus another human endeavor. It's between a human endeavor or a divine initiative. Jesus coming and bringing salvation. And of course, that faithfulness of Jesus produces faith in us. I'll give you an example. Not too long ago, about six weeks ago, my wife and I adopted a little puppy. His name is Springer, little beagle baby. Very, very cute. Takes after his daddy. Um, and uh, we've been working on training Springer. Here he is learning how to sit. You, you got a treat and a little clicker, and he is all focused on you at all times. Um, and it's, a, I think, a unique analogy to kind of what we've been getting at in Galatians, and we'll see again this morning. So Springer has faith in me, to use some of this religious terminology. Springer trusts me. And part of this is because he's just a small puppy. And so if I walk away from him, you don't really have to teach him to follow you. He just wants to be beside you. Doesn't want to be away from you. Doesn't want to feel unprotected in any sense. Um, But in a larger sense, Springer's trust in me is built out of my faithfulness to him. 
Because every day, myself or my wife get up and we feed him. And we provide for him and we give him shelter. And we clean up after him when he needs to be cleaned up after. And we give him toys and treats and play with him. It's our initiative in taking care of Springer and providing for him and giving him life that's really the focal point of our relationship. And out of our faithfulness to Springer has resulted Springer's own faith or trust in us. Does that kind of make sense? I think this is what we see on a large scale and obviously a much more cosmic religious scale when it comes to Jesus. It's the divine initiative of the Father sending his Son into the world to be crucified and resurrected on our behalf, which allows us to be justified or made righteous. It's not that we are following any works of the law, that we're cutting off parts of our body or eating certain things or not eating with certain people. It's that something powerful has happened in the world, and Jesus, the the Son of God, and that it has created a whole new world of opportunity for us, including the creation of human beings like you and I, who are themselves faithful people, who have been formed into this trusting relationship with Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. Galatians 10 through 14. This contains one of the more classical Lutheran portions of the text. That's easy to preach, Makes kind of sense, but again, I'm going to say that we perhaps need to think deeper about this, that perhaps there's more going on, even if it's not quite as satisfying right away. We will, however, expand our focus to the first um, 14 chapters or verses of chapter 3 to to help us make sense. Um, So at first, let's read all the way through chapter 3, verse 1 through 14, although we'll focus in there on verses 10 through 14. Um, we have preached two weeks on uh, Galatians 3, 1 through 5, and then um, Galatians uh, 3, 6 through 9, um, but we will read them again to get some context. So if you'll read with me, Galatians 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Just let me put a, a marker in the sand there, okay? Paul's referring to the story of Jesus that he has told the Galatian churches when he was there preaching to them, when he started these churches in Galatia, when they became people who heard the story of Jesus' faithfulness, his crucifixion and resurrection, and that created trust and belonging in them. Jesus publicly portrayed, crucified, verse 2. Let me ask you this only. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law? This is, again, not law in generic form. It's not just trying to do good things to earn God's favor. These are Mosaic laws, laws of Moses, circumcision, kosher laws. Did you get the Spirit, he says, by doing those works, which they hadn't done by then, the false teachers hadn't arrived, or by hearing with faith, or by the story of Jesus and his faithfulness creating a response of faith in you. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles 
those who are not Jewish by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and he quotes here from Deuteronomy, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, he quotes now from the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, he quotes now from Leviticus, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Remember, some false teachers had come into Galatia and they had said, look, if you really want to follow Christ and really be included into God's family, you need to have more than just this trusting response to Jesus. You need to follow these Mosaic laws. And Paul's been arguing that that's not the case, that Gentiles can be Christians as Gentiles that they do not have to be circumcised or follow any other Mosaic laws, that in fact, that is a distortion of the gospel. That gets the gospel wrong on so many levels. Gentiles don't have to be converted into this Jewish nationality um, in order to receive the promises and blessings of Christ. If you notice in verse 14, we're, we're mentioning Abraham and the Spirit. In Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And notice how that ties into the first part of chapter three. In the first few verses in chapter three, Paul's talking about the Galatians' experience with the Holy Spirit. He says, you've received the Holy Spirit well before these teachers came in and tried to get you to do other things. You've received this promise from God. And this reception of the Spirit was the supernatural, miraculous experience for the Galatians. So often you and I have a kind of a vague interaction relationship with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we, we think the Holy Spirit is for other types of Christians like Pentecostals or Assemblies of God. Or we think the Holy Spirit is, is just the little voice inside of our head, right? Some form of consciousness that we have, conscience. But the Galatians have this powerful encounter with the Spirit. And then Paul then goes on to talk about Abraham. And he mentions Abraham and Abraham's faith and how Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith. And now in this last passage, verses 10 through 14, he brings those themes back together because of what Christ has done, because of the story of Christ crucified at the beginning of chapter three, and because of Christ redeeming us on a cross, on a tree. We have received the blessings of Abraham and been made recipients of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we look at verse 10, Paul comes out swinging. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is a, a bold statement. This is a counterattack on behalf of Paul. Um, he says, if you are relying on following these Mosaic laws, you are cursed. This is not the way into acceptance by God. Paul says this because he believes that this is the only thing the law can do. The law's sole purpose is to bring a curse 
into the world. No one is accepted by God through the law, the Mosaic law. It cannot accomplish giving life as it claims to do in the quote he gives from Leviticus chapter 18. Primarily, Paul believes this because it's incompatible with the gospel story. It's incompatible with the faithfulness of Jesus, with the salvation that he's accomplished through his life, the, the, the life that Christ came to give us who he had to die for. You could break the logic out like this. If the law could give you and I life, then we could have righteousness through that law. And if righteousness could be got through that law, there's no need for Christ to die. There's no need for the divine act of the Son becoming incarnate and being killed and resurrected. But we know the gospel story. We know how God brought salvation. We know how God makes people righteous. It's through his Son's crucifixion and through his resurrection. And working backwards, Paul then says, righteousness must not be attainable through the law. If we get it through Christ and his death and resurrection, we don't get it through the law, and thus the law has no power to give life. We might ask ourselves, why are all of us under the law under a curse? Now, this is where it becomes very easy for what I've called the classic Lutheran perspective uh, of reading the scriptures, and particularly Galatians comes into play. He quotes from Deuteronomy um, about this curse. It's at the end of a, a list of national curses given to the Israelites. He said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, some will point at and emphasize this all here in this quotation. Cursed are the people who don't do all things in the law. If you're familiar with the Old Testament law, with the Mosaic law, it's pretty far-reaching. There's lots to say about almost everything in your life. And so it's easy to seize upon this text and to imagine that the reason you're under a curse, if you're under the law, is because you are unable to fulfill the law. You might be a bad person and might never really even get close to doing something right according to the law. Or you might be a really good person. And even then at your best day, there's going to be some points where you fail. It's just impossible. People call this the unfulfillability of the law. It's so big and wide in its scope that it will be impossible to ever be sinless underneath it and thus get anything other than a curse. Now, I believe this is incorrect for many, many reasons. I think this is just a wrong way of reading this text. The first reason is there's not a Jew in history, besides maybe a couple eccentric ones, that thought that Jews had to be sinless with respect to the law to be acceptable to God. When you know history, you know that this kind of reading is just not correct. No Jews thought this. In fact, the existence of the temple is an admission that this is not the case. You go to the temple to get what? Forgiveness. To confess, to offer sacrifices. You have a national holiday where everyone comes together for a day of atonement. The law itself understands you're not going to follow all of the law. And so the law itself prescribes lawful things for you to do in order to find forgiveness, in order to deal with these aspects where you are not sinless. The difference between fulfilling the law and obeying it and being sinless are two different things. 
Paul and others considered themselves righteous in fulfilling the law and obeying the law. But we never have any real sense that they thought that they were sinless, that they thought that they were perfect human beings who had never um, been cut off in traffic and said those words that, that I can't say from the pulpit. The law brings a curse because it's the purpose of the law. Um, it's what the law does. It's all the law can do. It was never given to make people righteous. We'll see this as we move throughout Galatians. Paul will say the law was given for a short amount of time to be our guardian once we're imprisoned underneath it. It was never given in order to be the conduit of God's promises and blessings to all of the people. Now, um, we move on to verse 13 and 14 as we read. We read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, this pronoun us is tricky. When we read the Bible, we have the tendency to think that everything that's written in the Bible applies to us, to me, because I'm pretty special. And why would anything ever be written that doesn't always at every point, at every second, speak directly to me and to my situation? Again, some knowledge of history might help us out here. It's most likely that the us Paul is referring to is the Jewish people perhaps particularly the Jewish Christians that he is talking to, um, engaging with, interacting with in the um, book of Galatians. There is um, lots of evidence um, that the Jewish people never expected the Gentiles to have to follow the law, that that was not their job. The law was given to Israel. It was a national law. The curses laid out in Deuteronomy that Paul quotes from were curses not for the whole world. They were curses for Israel if they were unable to fulfill the law in the appropriate way. Christ has redeemed us from the law. Um, I think the best way to read this is to understand Christ's action working in many different ways working on different levels to different people. So the the Jewish people who are under this curse of the law, Christ dies to redeem them. There's this glorious exchange. He becomes a curse for them in order that they might be redeemed. This language of redemption is a commercial um, word. It's about buying something back. In particular, it's often used for slavery, for liberating slaves. This continues on with a theme throughout Galatians, where Paul imagines salvation not so much as the get-out-of-hell-free card or as guilty people being made forgiven, but as imprisoned people being liberated, as people under the, the forces of the powers of the darkness being rescued from an evil age. And we're told this glorious exchange, people who are cursed, are redeemed, are freed into this new world, new reality, because Christ himself steps into that and becomes a curse. The language is very strong. It is reminiscent of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, He who knew no sin, being Jesus, 
became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In both cases, you might not expect language like that if we were writing these chapters, these verses. We might say Christ redeemed us from the curse by bearing the punishment of the curse. Paul says, no, he redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse himself. Or we might say, he who knew no sin forgave us of our sin by undergoing the punishment due for our sin. Paul, again, is much stronger here. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is this powerful exchange at the heart of Paul's thought process, what happens between Jesus and his people, where Jesus steps into the place of his people in such an exhaustive and powerful way that they not only participate in what he's accomplished for them by being a curse or becoming sin, but they also are able to participate in the freedom that he receives through his resurrection after he's exhausted those powers. Christ became a curse to free those who were under a curse. For Paul, this might explain why it's so foolish for these Galatians to try to move back into the law period, right? He says, look, one of the things Christ did was he fixed the problem with the law period. You had this group of people who were stuck in the law and he came to redeem them from the law. And now you're telling me that you want to like tiptoe yourself back into that situation? He, he goes further in chapter three. We'll see this as he gets more explicit about this. He says the law imprisoned people. It might've had its role at certain times in certain places. But now you Galatians are telling me that you've already received the spirit just by responding in faith to the story of Jesus. And now you want to become cursed yourself? No, no, no. He says, Jesus solved the law problem. He redeemed the Jewish people, freeing them from the curse of the law. And in doing so, he allows the Gentiles to receive the blessing, to receive adoption, to receive life. And then Jew and Gentile now are able to share in God's spirit. Now are able to be indwelt by God's spirit. Now, we look back at where Paul talks about Abraham in verse 7 through 9. And Paul talks about Abraham and Abraham's faith and Abraham's faith making him righteous and children of God, even Gentiles, you and I, um, being like Abraham because we, like Abraham, are faithful people. But if you notice, um, there's a couple things that stand out about Paul's treatment of Abraham here. Um, And I want to suggest that he mentions Abraham and Abraham's faith as a foreshadowing of Christ and Christ's faith. We'll see this again, I think, as we read through Galatians chapter 3. He is alluding, I think, to what we saw in our passage, which is the Habakkuk text. Um, So Paul quotes from this Habakkuk text, says, the righteous will live by faith. If you're in an ESV Bible, like I'm preaching out of that we have around here in the church, there should be a note. Number seven, you go down to number seven. There are other ways to translate this phrase. In fact, there's a long tradition of using this phrase. It becomes one of Paul's favorite phrases to use. This Habakkuk 2 quote, the righteous will live by faith. 
In fact, I think the ESV's second option it gives us is closer to how Paul is using it and how Paul reads it. It goes, the one who by faith is righteous will live. The one whose faithfulness creates them as a righteous person, they are the ones who will receive life, who will receive resurrection, who receive the promise of Abraham. There's a long history before Paul of reading this Habakkuk passage as a messianic promise, a prophecy. So the righteous, not just being God's people in general, but one who will eventually come and who through his faithfulness will be righteous and receive life. And in him, others might receive life as well. And so perhaps Abraham is foreshadowing Christ and Christ's faith and the benefits of Christ's faithfulness that you and I receive. The text serves Paul well as proof that Gentiles are and can be included in the blessing of Abraham. But it's important to recognize that the blessing is given to the Gentiles not because of their faith, but because of Abraham's faith. It's the faith of Abraham. It's his obedience that allows later on the promise of God to come true, that others will receive his blessing. I think this foreshadows what Paul sees happening in this passage 10 through 14 with Christ. It's Christ's work on the cross. It's Christ's faithfulness. It's the consequence of his action that allows the promise and the blessing to continue. Again, as we read Galatians 3, I wish we had more time and we could just look at the whole chapter at once. We'll see Paul kind of explains this explicitly as he keeps going. He sees Abraham, um, his promise going to one seed in particular, one person in particular, which is Jesus. And it's in Jesus, in Jesus' act of faith, that you and I find justification, that you and I find life, that you and I find the Spirit and the inheritance of the Spirit. You and I aren't justified because we believe like Abraham believed. You and I are justified because Jesus lived a faithful life like Abraham lived a faithful life. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, you and I are able to enter into this trusting relationship with God where we find this beautiful promise, this beautiful inheritance coming true for us. Christ's action here in this passage does a few things. It enables the Jewish people to receive redemption from the curse of the law. It enables the Gentiles to receive the promise and the blessing given to Abraham. And for Jews and Gentiles alike, it allows us to receive the Spirit. And sometimes it's easy to underplay the importance of the Spirit for Paul and for the Christian life. The reality of the Spirit as one of the benefits, the outworkings of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. You can see in verse 14, we get two um, henna clauses. Henna is a, a Greek word. Um, so that, you see that twice. So that, so that. What happened on the cross happened so that in Jesus, because of his work, the blessings of Abraham can come to people who are not Jewish, who don't have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic laws. But also so that these concentric circles, we, all of us, might receive the promised spirit through faith. And again, I would, I would press you, 
What's this through faith at the very end of verse 14? Is it through the faith of a human actor? Do we receive the promise of the Spirit? Are we indwelt by the Spirit because of some decision we've made, because of some intellectual moment we've come to, where we place faith in something, in a person? Or is it through the faith that's already been accomplished by Jesus, the faithfulness, the obedience, the decisive and divine act of salvation in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? For my part, I think this is the way to read this passage. We receive the promised spirit through faith, but it's not our faith. It's the faith of Jesus, foreshadowed by the faith of Abraham one man's obedience that will create a blessing and a promise passed down to others found in him, found in his family. The spirit the Galatians had experienced that we read at the beginning of chapter three, this spirit is not just a self-authenticating religious experience. Rather, the experience is significant for Paul's argument because he interprets it in and through the scriptural passages he quotes. It itself is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. If you want to see the truth that Jesus has accomplished God's promises, that he's brought Gentiles into the family of God, you see it nowhere else more clear than the fact that there are people who are not following the works of the law who have received God's very own spirit. And in their life, God's very own spirit is at work and is active and can be trusted to guide them into more Christ-likeness, can be guided and trusted to convict them of sin when needed, to comfort them when needed, to remind them of Jesus' teachings when needed, to serve as a guarantee or down posit of the eternal life and new creation that are those who belong to the resurrected Jesus. The story of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus creates for Paul the possibility of a community that can be indwelt by the Spirit. And I admit again that at times I have to wonder about my relationship with the Spirit. Because at times I see my Pentecostal brothers and sisters and I go, well, I don't speak in tongues like they do. And I, you know, I haven't performed miracles like they have in the Spirit. Again, I'll argue very passionately, it's because just people don't let me spit on them, as Jesus does in the Gospels. What is this relationship with the Spirit that we have that for Paul, I think, is so central to the Christian life? It's one of the main benefits of the work of Christ is one of the main drivers of the community of Christ that is created. There's no male or female or slave or free or Jew or Gentile. The promised spirit given to you and I without needing to check off any boxes of any works of the law, of any other predetermined actions we think might be necessary in order to be accepted and included by God. For the Galatians, as for us, the Holy Spirit 
is a powerful and active force that we receive because of Jesus. And it's our job, particularly as people who may not be as comfortable with the Holy Spirit, who may not understand the Holy Spirit as well as some other traditions do. It's our job to lean into the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's our job to develop the ears to hear the prompting of the Spirit, to be able to discern what's the Spirit speaking, where He's calling us to go, what He's calling us to do. It's our job to as Paul will say later, walk in the Spirit and live by the Spirit. To instead of getting drunk by wine, be inebriated on the Holy Spirit. Let that animate the very lives that we live. And as Paul will lay out later in Galatians, this has an ethical dimension to it. The Spirit calls us into Christ-likeness. The Spirit calls us into self-control and gentleness. The Spirit, though, also calls us into the blessings of God. It's in the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives as individuals and as a community that we find peace, that we find joy, that we find ourselves united with Christ, faithfully trusting that Our destiny is held up in his life, guaranteed by his resurrection. This morning as we come to the table and we rehearse the story of Jesus, the faithfulness of Christ on the cross, and then resurrected by the Father, we come grateful for the work he has done for allowing you and I as Gentiles to inherit the promises of Abraham, to receive the blessing, and to be recipients and conduits of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world. And may we evermore be not only appreciative, not only be called to worship because of these truths, but be committed to living them out. Be committed to developing this relationship with the Spirit who unites us to Christ. Be committed to following this Spirit. You see, you and I might not be as tempted by the works of the law. If you're struggling this morning with whether you needed to get circumcised in order to be accepted by God, I've got good news. You don't. If you're wondering about who you should eat with or not eat with because of the things that they eat, got good news for you. The table's open, and you should probably be there. But there are other things that come at us. There are other messages that promise salvation or life. There are other, there are other shapers out around us that want to shape us into beings of character that aren't Christ-like. There are these siren calls of things all throughout our culture that say this is where you'll find peace. This is where you'll find joy. Or that say you don't need self-control. You don't need humility. You don't need gentleness. But it's our joy 
our responsibility and our privilege to recognize the gift that we have in the Spirit, the truth the Spirit leads us towards, and the ever-increasing task of being receptive to that Spirit. And brothers and sisters, the good news is the more and more we can lean into the Holy Spirit, the more and more we can appreciate the work that Christ has done on the cross, allow his story to shape our story, the more life and fruitfulness you and I will find. And this increasing life, this increasing joy, this increasing peace doesn't end. It doesn't end in two weeks when you're done thinking about the Spirit. It doesn't end in 10 years when you move or are kind of distracted by other things in your life. It doesn't even end when you die. This gift of the Spirit and the life that He provides because of the work of Jesus sent from His Father out of love is eternal. That's the power to keep and to save us. And so today, right now, in Sugarland, Texas, just as in first century Galatia, you and I are called to live as the people of Jesus, shaped by his story and his faithfulness, marked by and moved by the work of the Holy Spirit.